Well, good morning, everybody. So good to see you all and to worship with you on this beautiful day. Today, we are continuing with our sermon series called The Games People Play. And we kicked this off two weeks ago. And then if you were here last week, we had just an unbelievable morning with Minnesota Adult and Teen Challenge, where we heard just uh, powerful testimonies and powerful music about God's transforming power. But this week, we're back to this series, and really the, the idea behind this series is to look at some very popular games that we play as Americans, and these games, I think, have some important lessons that they can teach us, and these lessons are also lessons that we find in Scripture. And so today, I want to look at the game Battleship. Now, I think many of you are familiar with the game Battleship, if not you should check it out. It's a very fun game. But kind of the idea behind it is you hide five battleships from your opponent. And then you blindly fire torpedoes at each other's board. And the goal is to try to hit each other's ships. And each ship has a different number assigned to it. And once it's hit that many times, it's considered sunk. And once someone sinks, all five of their opponent's ships then they win. Now, this game, I think, has a lot to teach us about relationships. Because I think we would all agree that in our world, we have conflict and division and disagreements all around us. And the thing about these kind of conflicts that we find ourselves in so often in this world is oftentimes we try to fire as many torpedoes as possible. And yes, there are some conflicts that will be coming up this fall. And we'll probably talk about that later on. Now we find these kind of conflicts in our homes. We even find these kind of conflicts at work or at school, in our community, in our world and beyond. We even see conflict, of course, in politics. Now, the thing about conflict is that oftentimes we are not good at resolving it. And because we are sinful people, because we live in a broken world, these conflicts seem to be simmering all over the place. Now, as we experience these different conflicts in our relationships, it's so easy for us to have a battleship mentality. To figure, I'm going to launch as many torpedoes at the other person as possible, and I'm going to try to sink all their ships, and then I will win. And that's what we all want, right? We want the satisfaction of being right and of winning. But then there are many of us who maybe are a little more passive-aggressive. And so what we do instead is we stockpile all our weapons, and we just bide our time. And we pretend like everything is okay, nothing's wrong, there's no conflict to see here. But the thing is, that conflict continues to bubble below the surface. Now, unfortunately, I think this is the story of many marriages today, where there is conflict that builds up over the years. And it's never addressed out in the open, but it's simmering below the surface, ready to explode but it's not just marriages, it can be friendships, it can be between parents and child, it can be work colleagues, pretty much any relationship that we're in. 
there can be this conflict that builds up below the surface. Now, of course, this is not the life that God intends for us. It's not what he wants us to experience. He makes his hopes and his dreams for our relationships known very clearly in Scripture. One of the places we see this is in the book of Romans, chapter 12, starting with verse 17. And here's what Paul has to say. He says, never pay back evil for evil to anyone as much as possible, as far as it depends on you. Live in peace with everyone. It's such a realistic passage because God knows that we are going to have conflict and we are going to have friction in our relationships. Again, it's just a product of being sinful people in a broken world. Two sinful people don't cancel each other out. Two sinful people in a relationship have twice as much sin. And so we are going to experience conflict and division and friction. But this passage admits sometimes that conflict isn't really your fault at all. Because we can only be responsible for our own actions and our own choices. We can't control what other people do or say. So Paul says, as much as it depends on you, go out of your way to live at peace with everyone. Do whatever you can do. Take every step possible. With God's help, try to live at peace. But we all know that conflict is still present in our lives. In order to put God's words into action, We need to learn to resolve conflict in a healthy and effective way. We have to learn how to call a ceasefire, to stop firing those torpedoes at each other, and to stop trying to sink each other's battleships. The problem is, church, that for most of us, conflict resolution is maybe the most important skill that we were never taught growing up. Right? In most of our households, conflict resolution was not something that was done very well. And if you look back at your schooling, most of us never went through a class at school that taught us how to resolve conflicts in a healthy way. Instead, what we learned to do is how to sweep it under the rug, or how to ignore it, or how to pretend like it wasn't there. But again, the problem is that unresolved conflict just sits in place below the surface and it becomes like a sliver that you have in your finger. And it's an annoyance and it hurts and it brings pain. And in the end, that unresolved conflict can keep us from experiencing the joy and the happiness and the fulfillment that God desires for us. And eventually, unresolved conflict will start to impact all of our relationships. It keeps you up at night. It takes energy away from you. It takes the focus away from more productive things. And ultimately, conflict will negatively impact your relationship with God. You might remember a a verse in 1 John chapter 4, where it actually says, we can't love God 
and hate our brother and sister at the same time. It's not possible. You can't simultaneously say that you love God and be in a huge conflict with your brother or sister. And so we need to learn how to resolve those conflicts so that we can live at peace the way that God teaches and the way that he intends for us. Now I think also this is something specifically that the large C church needs to get better at. Because oftentimes conflicts in the church can be the ugliest and the most out of control in our entire society. And the problem with this is when we aren't good at handling conflict within the church, it can actually keep people away from meeting Jesus. And so this is vitally important for us as followers of Jesus to learn how to practice in our everyday life. So I believe we should be the very, very best at conflict resolution. In order to help this along, today what I want to do is to focus on five key biblical steps towards conflict resolution. And if you want to follow along inside your bulletin, there should be a handout where you can take some notes. I've noticed that it's especially good to take notes if you're prone to dozing off during sermon time. It kind of keeps you awake. It's also uh, sure to get you ready for the pop quiz that may or may not be at the end of the service. So just a little heads up there. The first step towards biblical conflict resolution is to take initiative, to be the first to go. Now, this could be the most important, but also the most difficult step in the whole process. The first step is not to bury the conflict or ignore it or deny it, but instead to face it head on. Now, since almost no one here enjoys conflict, most of the time what we do instead is we sit back and wait. We figure, well, it's their responsibility to come to me. I'm going to wait for them to come and address the problem. And meanwhile, we can play the martyr. We can feel sorry for ourselves. We can look down on the other person. And all the while, the conflict and the resentment continues to grow. Or other times, we might go into the avoidance mode and just figure, you know, it'll take care of itself eventually. But the truth is, conflict doesn't take care of itself. Maybe you've heard people say, well, time heals. It's a bunch of baloney. That conflict will continue to stay there until we choose to address it. Now, here's what Jesus has to say about it in Matthew 5. We heard this in our gospel reading. Jesus says, therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. And then he says, first, if you have a Bible that you can write in, I would circle the word first. This is important. First, go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Consider for a moment what Jesus is saying there because it is mind-blowing. Jesus is saying your reconciliation 
with others takes precedence over your worship. He's saying if you think you can come to church on a Sunday morning and come and sit in your spot and sing the hymns and you can participate in the service but not address the conflict in your life, you are fooling yourself. God wants you to get rid of that junk first. And what Jesus is saying is that God can wait. Your worship can wait because your relationships matter that much to God. Now, church, if we were honest about our own lives and where we're at, I think the truth is most of us would not be sitting here right now, right? If we truly took Jesus' words to heart, many of us would be getting up right now and maybe walking to the other side of the sanctuary to go have a conversation with someone here. Or maybe we'd be walking out to the parking lot and getting in our car and driving across town or maybe even to a different city in order to address a conflict that we've allowed to go on far too long. The best way to resolve a conflict is to take initiative, to face it head on. Now, think back to the story of Adam and Eve in the book of Genesis. Remember, they chose to disobey God. And by doing so, they were in conflict with God. That's what sin does. But they didn't face their conflict head on. No, instead, they tried to hide in all the foliage. And not only that, as they hid, they tried to pretend and cover up what they had done. They tried to pretend like nothing had happened. And you know what? That same pattern of behavior is still hardwired into us today. Because we have a tendency to try to hide to try to explain away, to try to pretend like that conflict isn't there. And that's why it is so important for us to take initiative, to be the first to go. Now, I know it's not easy because almost none of us like confrontation. Almost none of us like conflict. But remember, God said he did not give us a spirit of fear, but instead he gave us a spirit of power and love, and he goes with us into each one of our relationships. What's not possible by ourselves is possible with his help. So the first step, you take initiative, you go to the other person first. Now set up a meeting when it's mutually good for both of you. Don't try to ambush them at a bad time and don't go at a bad time for yourself. Go when you're both at your best. But it's so important, take initiative, be the first to go. Secondly, then be the first one to take responsibility. Make sure you start with you. Even if they are 99.99% at fault, what does that mean? It means you're still 0.01% at fault, I think, if my math's right. There's still an element of the conflict that you can take ownership of. Now, this takes a ton of humility but it's so essential to making sure that the conflict is resolved. There is power and there's healing that takes place when you're willing to confess your part. Jesus talks about this in Matthew chapter 7. 
He says, why worry about a speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? First, again, there's that word, circle it, underline it. First, get rid of the log in your own eye. Then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. When we are willing to humble ourselves in love, it opens up doors. Defenses are brought down. It's about putting away all your torpedoes, making it clear your goal is not to sink their ship. Instead, it shows that you want to move forward to resolve the conflict, to live at peace, to experience healing in the damaged relationship. Third step, listen carefully to their perspective. Have you ever noticed how conflict seems to get worse and worse when very little listening gets done? James, in chapter 1, verse 19 of his book, says this. Be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to get angry. Think for a moment what it would look like for our world to put just these three things into practice. Don't you think everything would change? I mean, these are powerful things. Be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. I mean, I think a lot of our conflicts and our divisions and our fights would start to be healed if we would just put these three things into practice. I mean, when you get in a political disagreement with someone, I know not many of you do this, but some of you, if you ever get in a political disagreement, how much time do you spend listening to the other person? Do you consider their perspective? Do you ask more questions to try to find out where they're coming from instead of just trying to argue and fight back and talk over the top of them? As we heard in our first Bible reading from Philippians, Paul says, don't look out only for your own interests. Take an interest in others, too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. When you're in a conflict with someone, listen to their perspective. I mean, how do they view what's going on? What else is going on in their life that might be contributing to the conflict? What hurts might they be carrying with them? We often say hurt people hurt people. And so if someone's hurting you, consider how they too might have been hurt by someone else. There's a wise saying that says, seek first to understand before seeking to be understood. I think it's something we could all do better. I read a story by an author named Gordon MacDonald. He wrote this in Leadership Journal magazine. He shared a story about some friends of his named Dr. Paul and Edith Reese. When the Reeses were in their 90s, McDonald sat down to interview them because they had been married for over 60 years. And he asked them, in their 60-plus years of marriage, do they still fight? Oh, sure we do, Dr. Reese responded. Yesterday morning was a case in point. Edith and I were in our car, and she was driving. 
She failed to stop at a stop sign, and it scared me half to death. So what did you do, McDonald asked. Well, I've loved Edith for all these years, and I've learned how to say hard things to her. But I must be careful, because when Edith was a little girl, her father always spoke harshly to her. And today, when she hears a man speak in anger, even my voice, she is deeply, deeply hurt. But Paul, McDonald said, Edith is 90 years old. Are you telling me that she remembers a harsh voice from that many years ago? She remembers the voice more now than ever, Reese said. McDonald then asked, so how did you handle that driving situation from the other day? Ah, he said, I simply said, Edith, darling, after we've had our nap this afternoon, I want to discuss a thought I have for you. And when the nap was over, I was calm, she was ready to listen, and we solved our little problem. Then McDonald concluded, said, these are the words of a man who has learned that sometimes conflict is necessary, and it can even be productive. But it always must be managed with wisdom and grace. And then he concludes by saying, by the time I reach 90, I hope to be just like him. Leads into number four. Speak the truth in love. In Ephesians 4.29, Paul says, don't use foul or abusive language let everything that you say be good and helpful so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. Again, what amazing words and what an impact it would have to put them in practice. When I started at my former church, I spent some time in the onboarding process, getting to know all the systems at the church. And one of the things I had to learn was how to log onto my computer and into my email account. And I noticed a commonality between the passwords that I was given. There were three letters and then three numbers in each password. It said EPH 429, which I was puzzled for a moment, but I did go to seminary, so I figured it out. Okay, Bible verse. Now I had to look it up, and I read these words. Let everything you say be good and helpful and encouraging. And I started to think how it's an amazing verse to consider every time I log onto the computer or I log into email or into social media. Let everything you say be good and helpful and encouraging. Now this goes for resolving conflicts too. It's so important to choose your words wisely and carefully and constructively. To speak the truth in love. It's the opposite of what we see in social media all the time, where people just shoot torpedoes at each other all day long. Human relationships are based on trust. And trust begins with love. Now remember, in any conflict resolution, what the goal is. The goal is to attack the problem and not the person. 
but it's so hard to put that into practice, right? I mean, look at any political ad. It's almost always attacking the person and not the problem. Think back to the last argument you had or the last fight that you had. More than likely, you focus more on attacking the person than you did the problem. Remember the goal. Attack the problem and not the person. And that leads to number five. Stay focused on the ultimate goal, which is reconciliation. Reconciliation is the healing and the reestablishing of the relationship. Now, the goal in conflict resolution is not to agree on everything. You can still have disagreements. And the goal is not to shoot a few more torpedoes for punishment or retribution. Instead, remember, the goal is to preserve the relationship, first and foremost. And when you make that your goal, preserving the relationship, then you start to realize some things aren't worth arguing over. And they certainly aren't worth dividing over. And you realize that there might have to be some give and take. And there might have to be a new vision for the future. But if both people can agree on the ultimate goal, to preserve the relationship, to work towards reconciliation, well, then the solutions start to come and forgiveness and grace are possible. And here's the thing I want you to remember, church. It's always better to resolve the conflict than to dissolve the relationship. It's always better to resolve the conflict than to dissolve the relationship. Now, this isn't easy. It takes hard work. It takes cooperation. It takes forgiveness. It takes creativity. But with the power of God, we can bring reconciliation into any conflict. 2 Corinthians 5, starting with verse 17, says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has gone. The new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us through Christ, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Now just think about that last part. In God's grace, he's given us a job. And it's not just a job, it's a ministry. You are a minister of reconciliation. Our world is filled with so much conflict and division and disagreement, yet our call as Christians is clear. We are to be agents, to be ministers of reconciliation, to drop the battleship mentality, to seek to build bridges, and to bring people together. We are to be peacemakers, bringing peace to our relationships and our community and beyond. Now, when we focus on building bridges and resolving conflicts, and when we are peacemakers, it's then that we are being like Jesus, because that's precisely what he did in his time on earth. Jesus came to reconcile us to God, the Bible says. Now, just like Adam and Eve in the garden, we are in conflict with God because of our sin. Our sin separates us from God. Our relationship with God has been fractured. 
But here's the amazing, amazing thing. Just like we talked about in these five steps, God took the initiative. He died for us in the person of Jesus. The Bible puts it this way. It says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God took the initiative. He took the first step out of grace and mercy and love. He didn't wait for us to grovel or to try to crawl back or to try to do enough penance to earn his favor. He made the first move and he took the first step. And church, once we've truly experienced that kind of love and grace, we are called to pass it along. We're called to be that kind of person to others. People who bring reconciliation and healing into a conflicted, conflicted world. And I want you to imagine for a moment what it would look like if each one of us, just those of us here today, would go into this coming week and focus on being ministers, agents, representatives of reconciliation. Imagine some of the conversations that might need to take place. But imagine the power and the incredible witness it would be if we would go and resolve our conflicts through God's grace and love. If we would model for others what God has done for us and for them. I think it could make a huge difference in our community and beyond. Because this kind of peacemaking and this kind of reconciliation is attractive to others. And it's contagious. And when others experience God's grace, they can't help but pass it along. And so my prayer for you and for me today is that we would shift our mindset to be like Christ. And that today we would recommit to being ministers of reconciliation wherever we go. Amen.